The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 276. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan. And of course, subscribe to my YouTube page at Brian McClanahan, where you can watch this podcast. You can find all those social media buttons at my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B R I O N, McClanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address and I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can also click on that shop tab while you're there. Go out and get your Brian McClanahan Show logo on all kinds of cool stuff. T-shirts, hats, skins, all kinds of great things. I don't know if they have hats. It's one thing I don't know. But they do have stickers and skins for electronic devices and wall clocks and T-shirts and children's clothing. I, mean, I got all kinds of things out there for you to get with that Brian McClanahan Show logo. Also click on that support tab. You can go there, you can donate to the show, you can give a few bucks, help keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going. You can get your Brian McClanahan book plate. So if you've got one of my books and you want my autograph, get that book plate. I'll sign it, send it out to you. Painless way to get my autograph on a book. It's very easy, comes in an envelope. It's simple. But the best way, of course, to support the show is by going to mclanahanacademy.com. That's mclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll. You get a free class when you do. And I've got eight courses available for purchase. And all of that, of course, goes to support the show. This is free of charge. That's not, but um, you've got just great high-quality stuff. Hundreds of hours of lectures over there on all kinds of topics. But um, uh, it is uh, they are great courses, and you're going to want to get them. Also go to LearnTrue, T-R-U-E, LearnTrueHistory.com. That's my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. It's also a way to support the show. You go there, you sign up, you use my affiliate link, I get a few bucks, and you get over 20 courses taught by all kinds of great instructors, including yours truly. It's a great way to support the show and also get another great online educational source resource. So all kinds of ways to support the show, and let's talk about the show. And this show, just like recently I focused on Abraham Lincoln, I'm going to focus on Lincoln in this show too, and... I'm going to do it because I finally, after seven years, and here we are about the seventh anniversary of this movie coming out, watched Steven Spielberg's Lincoln. Now, I know that might seem shocking that I had not watched Steven Spielberg's Lincoln. It took me seven years to get around to doing it. And I always intended to. I'm going to watch it. I'm going to watch it. I just never did, primarily because I didn't want to be uh, swamped with the Lincoln myth. Um, so I finally had a little time. There was not much else going on. All right, finally, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to watch this thing, and I'm going to give you my honest opinion. Now, after I watched the movie, I went out, of course, and did a search for all the people that had said, was the movie Lincoln accurate? Now, of course, I found all kinds of things to criticize it for. It is, I laughed out loud several times during the movie because of the absurdity of the film. It is uh, the Lincoln myth on steroids in so many different ways. The portrayal of Congress is just awful. The portrayal of Lincoln at, uh, at times is just awful. Uh, Mary Todd Lincoln and her interactions 
And what she did, all of that is just false. Much of it, the way that she would have interacted with Congress members sitting in the gallery, none of that would have happened. Uh, the way, they, the way they, they portrayed slavery in the movie or the subject of slavery in the movie, uh, this was an overarching theme of Lincoln's administration. Just completely not true. Um, but the one area I want to focus on was an area that most historians have missed. Now, I read one account where they talked about this, but not in the way I'm going to, and that's the Hampton Roads Conference in 1865. First and foremost, the way that they portray Grant and his activities leading to the conference, Grant, it seemed at the time, if you watch the movie and you look at how Grant was doing things, Grant was... This irascible, very, um, you know, grouchy guy that certainly didn't really want to have this. He was talking down to these Confederate commissioners. And, uh, and in fact, Grant was the one who was really pushing for the peace conference. That the Lincoln administration should meet with them. Lincoln was refusing. Grant was actually pursuing it, saying, you should do it. You should meet with them. And so all of that, the way that Grant is portrayed, that's all false. Uh, when the three Confederate commissioners show up, <clears throat> excuse me, Campbell and Stevens and Hunter, they're met by black Union soldiers. That didn't happen. That's just movie making, right? There was no, that, there's no proof, there's no evidence, and we know from the historical record that that wasn't going to happen. But again, it's making this, it's it's almost as bad as Glory. Glory is, look, Glory is a fun film. Um, there are parts of it that are powerful. And when I say fun film, it's an interesting film. There are parts of it that are powerful. There's parts of the film Lincoln that are powerful. But they're all myth. It's made up. Much of it is made up. Uh, the way that these people all interacted with each other. The way the Congress and the way that they... I mean, yes, the Congress was, was uh, much more uh, rough and tumble back in the 1860s than it is today, but it wouldn't have been like it was there. I mean, we there were formal rules, and none of those were being followed in this Congress. Uh, the hero-making of Thad Stevens. Thad Stevens, now, of course, as I've read on, on several sites, well, I mean, the old interpretation of Thad Stevens was he's an abolitionist. He's a bad guy. That's not... Thad, Thad Stevens was um, one of the most vindictive members of Congress and folding up the 13th Amendment and taking it home. He never did that. I mean... There are so many problems with this, but I want to focus on this Hampton Roads Conference because this Hampton Roads Conference is a key. It would actually destroy the entire premise of the film, which is talking about the 13th Amendment. The second 13th Amendment, not the Lincoln Amendment, which would have protected slavery forever in the southern states. But this new 13th Amendment, which was going to abolish slavery, and you get into all the wire pulling and kneecapping and all the stuff that's going on, that uh, the film seems to make out that Lincoln all, always had a role in. He probably didn't. Seward may have. Uh, there was certainly wire pulling and um, to get votes. But regardless, we had this Hampton Roads Conference in 1865. 
right? I mean, we're just a few months before the end of the war, and here we are meeting. These three Confederate commissioners and Abraham Lincoln are meeting, and they're discussing what would happen if the South were to surrender or how they could end the war with two separate countries. I mean, this is what the Confederate commissioners were pushing for. It's what Jefferson Davis said. There's no, there's no peace without recognition. Lincoln, of course, was more interested in resumption at this point. And it's very clear that he was resumptionist because of the account that we have of the Hampton Road Conference, Hampton Roads Conference, from Judge Campbell and Alexander H. Stevens. Now, Hunter wrote something about it later, but it wasn't very detailed. But Stevens and Campbell were detailed in what they said Lincoln said at the, and Seward said at the conference. Remember, Lincoln and Seward were both old Whigs. Alexander H. Stevens was a good friend of Lincoln's before the war. Alexander H. Stevens was against secession. And he was the vice president of the Confederacy. So his account of the Hampton Roads Conference is interesting. So is Judge Campbell's. And so I want to read from a book um, that is... I think one of the best books on this particular topic that's ever been written. It's Lincoln's views on slavery and race in this war period. But there's 20 pages dedicated to this Hampton Road Conference in this particular book. And it's by uh, Paul Escott. And the title of the book is What Shall We Do With the Negro? And I want to read a substantial portion of this chapter and get into what's happening here. Before I do that, I'm going to set this up. So you have these three Confederate commissioners meet with Lincoln and Seward, and uh, they're going to discuss what would happen if the war would end. Now, again, these three Confederate commissioners were pushing for recognition. In fact, uh, Lincoln, I mean, according to their own account, I mean, Lincoln quickly took this off the table. He wasn't going to agree with that. But there was certainly a desire on the part of the South to end the war. And, I mean, Lincoln himself said in 1864 that the war could end at any time. 1865 gets here, though, and it looks like the Union's going to win in January of 1865 when this conference is held. So why would Lincoln agree to cessation of hostilities and recognition? He wasn't going to at that point. But one of the big issues, of course, was the proposed 13th Amendment and what that would do to the United States should the South come back in the Union, or how could the South negotiate coming back in the Union with that particular amendment in mind. That's what I want to focus on, and this is what Paul Escott focuses on. So I'm going to read a lot of this chapter, and I want to make comments on it as I can, or as I will, when I'm reading it. All right, so let's get started here. He says, quote, when the three Confederate commissioners reached Union lines in Virginia, General Grant forwarded information about their mission to Washington. The initial reaction of Lincoln and Secretary of State Seward was to refuse to see them. The wording in their instructions about two countries seemed unacceptable at first. So in the film, it shows that Lincoln waffles about this. Well, I mean, maybe I should see him. But Escott's saying none of them. They refused at first. But Grant, after talking to the Southerners, had become convinced that their desire for peace was genuine, and he used his influence to support their mission. So here's Grant actually pushing it. In the film, you see Blair really pushing it. He urged President Lincoln to meet with them and argued 
that to send them away with no contact would make a bad impression on the public. Responding to Grant's pleas, Lincoln decided on the spur of the moment to attend the conference. His departure from Washington with Secretary Seward startled Republicans, some of whom saw it as one of those incomprehensible whims, while others made no concealment of their anger and apprehensions. Nevertheless, the conference would now go forward, and these five men met aboard ship in Hampton Roads in February of 1865. Now, so he sets it up. January, the conference is set up. They finally meet in February. We're only now, and the war ends in April. Lincoln's dead in April. So we're not very far from that particular moment. Historians have debated ever since precisely what was said at the conference. No records were kept of the discussion as it was taking place, and so scholars have had to rely on accounts written later, principally recollections by two of the Confederate commissioners, John A. Campbell and Alexander H. Stevens. According to Campbell, all three Southerners had recognized the propriety of recording their recollections of what had occurred separately, and Campbell, shortly after my return home, had written about his account of the meeting, which was submitted to my colleagues and received without objection. Those were his words, without objection. Campbell published his memorandum along with other reminiscences in 1887. Years earlier, in 1870, Alexander Stevens had published a constitutional view of the late war between the states, in which he devoted 20 pages to the Hampton Road meeting. According to Campbell, Stevens had Campbell's memorandum in his possession as he wrote the book. The third commissioner, Robert M.T. Hunter, published an article about the conference in 1877, but his account is brief and rather uninformative. Resentment of the Union government dominates his essay, and most of the details that would be useful to historians are lacking. Apparently, no other records exist. So, Escott is laying out, I mean, we have these accounts, and Escott does something that's, I think, heroic in this next bit. He says this, The accounts of Campbell and Stevens, however, are very useful. They are fairly detailed and very similar in many respects. The accounts agree in describing the sequence of events and in specifying many details of the discussion. They also agree in portraying a Lincoln who insisted on reunion, but seemed eager to be conciliatory and accommodating on other matters, including slavery. Now, this is not what you get from the film. Lincoln in the film says the 13th Amendment is going to happen. It's, there's no negotiation there. And of course, at that point, uh, I think it's Campbell. No, maybe it was Hunter. One of the, it was either Hunter or Campbell. I can't remember who it was. Walks out of the room. But Lincoln was not that way in real life. Lincoln was the consummate politician. In fact, what Escott argues later is that what Lincoln was trying to do is work with these men because when the war is over, he hoped to forge a new conservative party and ostracize the radicals. He didn't like the radicals. Now, Lincoln was not a conservative, but Lincoln was not one of the radicals either, and he really didn't like what he thought they were doing to the Union and what they were doing to the government. Still, much of the significance of what they reported has been ignored in recent decades. One point in Stevens' description of the conference has aroused great objection from some historians, even as equally important facts consistent with Stevens' account have been overlooked. So Escott is being heroic here and getting into what actually transpired. And Before I get into that, I'll take a brief break. I'll be right back, and we'll cover the conference itself. I'll see you on the other side. Let me talk to you for a minute about McClanahan Academy. I know at the beginning of this particular podcast or this video, I talked about McClanahan Academy. But let me go into a little more detail 
about why I think you should sign up for it and why, and why I created it. First, a little bit about me. I have a PhD in American history from the University of South Carolina, and I've taught in the college environment for 20 years. And I've seen college students get worse over time, the curriculum get worse, and students are being indoctrinated more than educated now in our higher education system, whether it's high school or college. So I wanted a counterweight to that. And this is why I created the McClanahan Academy. Now, first, it's always free to enroll at McClanahan Academy. You sign up. It's free. And I give you a free course, 10 Myths of American History, when you do sign up. So it's a great way to get an introduction to what I do. But I've got eight courses for sale there and more forthcoming. All of these courses are designed to give you the non-PC version of American history, to take the red pill, so to speak. And I've got two courses in particular, my U.S. History Survey courses, which are designed for homeschoolers. So if you're a homeschooler and you want a good curriculum, and uh, my family has homeschooled all of our children from the beginning, and you want a solid history curriculum, that's why I designed the United States History to 1865 and 1865 to present. You've got enough material, you've got lesson plans, you've got uh, tests, you've got reading material, you've got reading seminars, you've got 36 weeks, if you take them, buy them both, you've got 36 weeks of material, and it can be used as a high school history curriculum, or if you're just a lifelong learner, you can use it otherwise. But it's a great way to get a real history education devoid of Marxism and progressivism and political correctness. So sign up at mclanahanacademy.com. That's mclanahanacademy.com. Again, always free to enroll, and I'll see you there. All right, we're back with the Brian McClanahan Show. We're talking about the Hampton Roads Peace Conference and Paul Escott's description of the conference. And this book, I didn't mention, is published by the University of Virginia. This is not some self-published book. This is a university press. And I mean, like I said, Escott is heroic here, but no one talks about this book. Why? Because it blows apart the Lincoln myth. Conclusively, I think, blows apart the Lincoln myth. So I'm going to continue with what Escott says transpired. The meeting began pleasantly, with Lincoln joking that his old friend Stevens was quite a small nubbin to emerge from a heavy overcoat and several shawls. According to Stevens's account, there followed references to former, happier days when the politicians had served together in Congress. Then Stevens asked whether there was a way to restore those prior good feelings, and Lincoln promptly insisted that there was only one way. Quote, for those who are resisting the laws of the Union to cease that resistance. Stevens then introduced his idea of a joint intervention against the foreign powers in Mexico, the notion he and Francis P. Blair favored. Although Stevens persisted in trying to explore this idea and received some help and encouragement from Seward, Lincoln eventually cut off the discussion of the topic by insisting that reestablishment of national authority was, quote, the only basis on which he would consider a settlement. At that point, Judge John Campbell changed the subject to ask, quote, how restoration was to take place. Lincoln and Seward cited the president's annual address to Congress in December of 1864, which he had named, quote, abandonment of armed resistance as the only indispensable condition to ending the war. The only indispensable condition. That was it. All you got to do is put down your arms. That is the only condition I ask for. But it also pledged to stand by his previous acts in regard to slavery. Pressing further, Campbell tried to probe the amb ambiguities of that statement and explore some of the inevitable legal issues. 
Seward stated that questions of property would lie with the courts, but he expected Congress to be liberal in restoring confiscated property or indemnifying for losses after the excitement of the times had passed off. When Stevens pressed Lincoln to comment further on the status of Southern slaves, the president described his Emancipation Proclamation as a, quote, war measure that would become, quote, inoperative with peace. Hmm. So here's Lincoln saying, I mean, that thing's not going to be in place. It's just a war measure. The courts, Lincoln said, would have to decide which slaves had become free and which had not. Seward and Lincoln agreed, and correctly, that only about 200,000 slaves had actually begun to enjoy their freedom at that point as a result of the Emancipation Proclamation and the events of the war. So here's Lincoln saying, I only think a couple hundred thousand of slaves are free anyways. I mean, this is, this is kind of a silly thing. My Emancipation Proclamation is a war measure. There's a speech in the movie where Lincoln gets into all this stuff, and he starts talking about the legality of it, and he's concerned about this or that. It's, he's talking to his cabinet. That didn't happen. Um, and, you know, Lincoln, everyone understood the problems of the Emancipation Proclamation. Lincoln was told straight out by a former Supreme Court justice, Benjamin Robbins Curtis, that the Emancipation Proclamation was illegal, it was unconstitutional, and it's going to open up a Pandora's box that Lincoln was more than happy to open because he thought this was the best way to subdue the enemy. This is his quote, subdue the enemy. So let's get into this 13th Amendment, which the film spends most of its time addressing. Then Secretary of State Seward raised an important issue. He observed that Congress had just approved, approved a proposed 13th Amendment, outlawing slavery, and had submitted it to the states for ratification. As this was discussed, Seward gave his opinion that the amendment would probably not be adopted since only 10 states needed to register their opposition. Hmm. So Seward was already pessimistic. The amendment would probably not even get adopted. Stevens explained that Seward's object seemed to be, quote, to impress upon the commissioners that if the war should not cease, this as a war measure would be adopted by a sufficient number of states to become a part of the Constitution. But if the Confederate states would then abandon the war, they could of themselves defeat this amendment by voting it down as members of the Union. When Stevens asked whether the Confederate states would be readmitted to Congress should they cease to fight, Lincoln promptly gave his opinion that they ought to be and would be, through, though he refused to make any agreement, quote, with the parties in arms against the government. Lincoln's, quote, own opinion, as Stevens recorded, was that, quote, when resistance ceased and the national authority was recognized, the states would be immediately restored to their practical relations to the Union. In other words, Lincoln is playing within on Seward's position. Yeah, when you all come back in, you just vote it down. If you come back in fast enough, you'll vote it down. The amendment will not take place. Remember, Lincoln, as I mentioned early in this podcast, and Daniel Crofts has I mean, just conclusively shown, Lincoln's fingerprints were all over the original 13th Amendment, which would have made slavery permanent in the South. Lincoln was not necessarily interested in ending slavery in the South. He was only interested in ending slavery in the Western territories. Why? Because that meant more power and, of course, the solidification of his political economic agenda, the old Whig agenda. RMT Hunter and Stevens, seeking guarantees, then tried to persuade Lincoln that a chief executive could enter into agreement with a warring party before the end of hostilities. But they made little headway. Instead, Lincoln recounted his policies 
towards slavery, emphasizing his record of concern for Southern rights. He had been compelled to emancipate in order to save the Union, he noted, and he'd always opposed immediate emancipation because of the many evils attending it. That's not what you get from the film. Lincoln wouldn't have said that. He was all for immediate emancipation. No, no. Lincoln here at Hampton Roads is saying, I'm not really for immediate emancipation. That could be a real problem. Then, according to Stevens, Lincoln paused, quote, as if in deep reflection, before he used these words, or words, almost, if not quite, identical. Stevens, if I was in your place, I would go home and get the governor of the state to call the legislature together and get them to recall all the state troops from the war, elect senators and members of Congress, and ratify this constitutional amendment prospectively so as to take effect, say, in five years. Such a ratification would be valid, in my opinion. Lincoln advised that the South's public men would be wise to adopt such a policy as will avoid, as far as possible, the evils of immediate emancipation. So he's telling Stevens, you should go home to Georgia, tell the governor to convene the legislature, end the war, and then conditionally ratify the amendment as long as it doesn't take effect for five years. So now Lincoln's postponing emancipation until 1870. Well, that's not what you get out of the film. Lincoln was intractable. He was unmoving. He was not. I mean, he's having dreams about this thing and what he should do. He should not compromise on the issue of slavery. But here he is, according to Stevens and Campbell, saying he's going to. Now, I'm, you can put this thing off. Five years, six years, whatever it is, we'll put it off. You can put it off. But the meeting came to an end. Before the meeting came to an end, I'm sorry. Lincoln made a number of additional comments that were revealing of his attitude and his plans for policy. When the Southerners complained about emancipation and argued that it would mean suffering for the slaves, this is what Southerners said. I mean, slaves are going to suffer if we do this. Lincoln told a story about an Illinois farmer who had avoided caring for his hogs by planting potatoes on which the animals could feed if they dug them up. Asked what the poor hogs would do in winter when the ground was frozen, the farmer replied, well, let them root. This callous comment evidently was designed to show the southern commissioners that emancipation could go forward and that Lincoln would not be overly sympathetic to the freedom they would have to fend for themselves. It's often cited as they could root hog or die. So Stevens and the Confederate commissioners were rightly concerned. I mean, you're going to emancipate, you're going to free over 3 million people. What's going to happen to him? There's not enough capital in the South to take care of all these people. Lincoln say, well, they can root. They can root hog or die. Seward and Lincoln also tried to disarm Hunter's irritated prospects that the Union was demanding unconditional surrender. And Lincoln pledged that he would be liberal in his treatment of defeated Southerners. Bringing up the subject of an indemnity for the loss of two owners, Lincoln volunteered that he was willing to be taxed to pay for such an indemnity, and he assured his listeners that many others shared his views. After about four hours, according to Stevens, the conference ended. So Lincoln's actually saying here, "We're going to give you, we're going to give you money. This is going to be a 1860s Marshall Plan." Uh, he was for it. We'll do it. This will make sense. This is what Stevens and Campbell are saying. Lincoln is saying they're agreement on this. And, of course, Lincoln and Seward didn't write any of this down. The politics was too hot. They weren't going to. But certainly Campbell and Stevens. And Escott, again, does something heroic here in a second with Alexander and Stevens. It's amazing. I mean, this book was not published 50 years ago. This book was published in 2000. 
and nine. Three years before the film Lincoln hit the big screen. So there was plenty of time if they wanted to get it right, they could have looked at Escott's book. They didn't. Campbell's account likewise reports that Lincoln began insisting that no agreement was possible unless the national authority was recognized. That Lincoln turned aside the idea of uniting to act against foreign intervention in Mexico, despite some interest shown by Seward, and that the president's December message to Congress is cited as a guide to the future. Similarly, Campbell notes that Lincoln expressed his opinion that the courts would have to decide which slaves had gained their freedom as a result of the Emancipation Proclamation and which had not. On the very important matter of the 13th Amendment, in Secretary Stewart's views, Campbell account, Campbell's account agrees in substance with Stevens. According to Campbell, after informing the Southerners that the new amendment had been sent to the states for ratification, Seward describes Congress's action as a war measure and said that it was probable that the measure would be abandoned if the war came to an end. As the conversation continued, Lincoln told his story about the farmer who expected the hogs to root for themselves or starve. Then he and Seward went to, went to some lakes to try to persuade Hunter that the Union did not insist on unconditional surrender or demand humiliation and submission from Southerners. On the contrary, Lincoln promised to exercise his powers very liberally and support an indemnity. He added that the laws relating to confiscation and pains and penalties had left the matter in his hands, although Congress controlled the admission of its own members. Uh, so, again, Campbell and Stevens fundamentally agree on what's being said. Escott continues, there is only one specific item in Stevens' description that does not appear in Campbell's account. Lincoln's suggestion that Georgia ratify the 13th Amendment prospectively. That one point has received an extensive amount of attention from recent historians. There is an understandable resistance in American culture to believing that Abraham Lincoln, the great emancipator, could have compromised on ending slavery. For emancipation justified the horrendous cost of war and made Lincoln an inspiring and heroic cultural icon. Here's the rub. Lincoln, the myth, the movie, is at odds with what Escott is actually saying took place. We have this mythical Lincoln, this Lincoln that is above reproach. He's just completely honest. He's completely good. We have that Lincoln, and then we have the real Lincoln, which is what Escott is describing. To undermine this point, has much has been made of the fact that Alexander Stevens published his book five years after the war came to an end. Some have viewed the passage of time or the possible, possible Southern bias in Stevens' recollection as reason not merely to doubt but to reject the accuracy of his account. For example, James McPherson has labeled the idea that Lincoln suggested a delay in ratification of the 13th Amendment absurd. William C. Harris has argued that Lincoln, quote, could hardly have advised prospective ratification, which would have undercut his recent and vigorous efforts to secure congressional action on the anti-slavery amendment, which he had called a king's cure. Harris also argues that Campbell's omission of this point provides further evidence that Lincoln did not make the suggestion on the amendment that Stevens attributed to him. Other writers simply omitted this specific issue. So the fact that and Campbell didn't talk about it, Harris is saying, well, then it didn't happen because Campbell didn't talk about it and Stevens did, so he made it up. The narrow focus on Lincoln's word ignores Seward's role and thus excludes other valuable and revealing evidence. But before turning to Seward's participation, once you recognize that there is additional evidence that Lincoln did, in fact, raise the notion of a delayed or prospective ratification. At the very least, this additional evidence proves that Alexander Stevens specifically understood him to do so and did not invent his story five years later. Such evidence comes from an Augusta Georgia newspaper and apparently has not been properly considered, or previously considered, excuse me. 
So he gets into uh, what this newspaper said, and of course, um, Stevens. But I want to get to this last part. Escott says, since no transcript of the conversations at Hampton Roads exists, it is impossible to prove definitively that Lincoln did or did not utter these words. One test of the question rests on Alexander Stevens' veracity. The Southern Vice President was a well-known political veteran who enjoyed a good personal reputation. He apparently was respected by Lincoln, his former congressional colleague, who chose Stevens as the recipient of an important letter during the secession crisis. This is where Lincoln supposedly says, what about my tariff? Unless critics of Stevens can demonstrate that he was a liar and his 1865 words untrustworthy, the scales incline toward accepting Stevens' account. In addition, one can evaluate the positions attributed to Lincoln for their level of agreement with his stated policies. So, Escott hits the nail on the head. He hits a home run. He says, if you're not going to believe Stevens, you have to say Stevens is a liar. Is Stevens a liar? And I think that there's no evidence that he is. I think there's no evidence that Stevens was lying about any of this stuff. And yet you have this mythical Lincoln who's going out there to free the slaves and do these wonderful things for American society. It's just not true. It's just not true. I think Paul Escott, in a University of Virginia book, again, not some self-published thing that has no scrutiny, uh, this is a peer-reviewed book. In the peers, I usually don't hold too high esteem, but it's a peer-reviewed book, and es- and uh, Escott takes apart the Lincoln myth. So go out and pick that book up, and it's really good. You're going to have to get it used, but it's a very good book. What Shall We Do with the Negro? Lincoln, White Racism in Civil War America by Paul D. Escott. You can get it on Amazon. Um, but that said, I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show, and I will see you next time. <laughs>